Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hahaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the, su- the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress, distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant me mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Thank you, Tracy. As you could see, we are uh, beginning a series in Nehemiah. Um, It may not be eminently obvious, but it will be as we go along here. Um, And I I have read Nehemiah. I'm sure just about everybody here has also. I preach from Nehemiah. And uh, this time as I prepared, I felt like the Lord was grabbing me. And um, just, uh, I've come away with a sense of awe of what I believe he wants to communicate to us. And so I ask that as we pray, that you do your best not to look at the pot of clay here, but that you endeavor simply to say, Lord, you have a good word for me here, and I want to hear it, and furthermore, I want to take it and embrace it and apply it. So would you do that as we pray, and uh, we'll get started with that.
Lord, indeed, we stand before you in awe. And uh, we bless your name and thank you that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you dwell in a high and lofty place. And also, Lord, you dwell with us who are contrite in spirit and humble in heart. And so we thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. Thank you, Lord God, for all the different ways in which you have beckoned us to come and listen and worship you and hear from you. And Lord God, we pray for a continuation of that. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us through your word. And Lord God, give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to take your word combine it with faith and apply it. So, Lord, we bless you and thank you in expectation of what you have in mind for us. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. I read an article, brief uh, blip actually, about Billy Graham. Um, I'm sure everybody here knows who Billy Graham is. I don't need to ask. Uh, he is 94 years old and is suffering from Parkinson's. And uh, he was invited to a, a, lunch, a luncheon in honor of his achievement uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he made some statements that jumped out at me and, and I, I found fascinating and inspiring. Let me just read to you a couple of the sentences that he made. When you hear that I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. May each of us have lived our lives so that when our ticket is punched... We don't have to worry about where we're going. And this is sobering because the past couple of weeks, at least for me, have been very sobering. Our country has been teetering on the edge of default and we have been humiliated on the international stage. And the melodrama that we had seen in Washington has been speaking very poorly of our government and um, it has made I would say most of us feel somewhat insecure I'll speak for myself and whenever things like that happen you can take one or two approaches you can go mashugi and ride the roller coaster of the current events um, and been there done that I tend to be somewhat of a news junkie um, but you know the older I get the more I realize that through the ups and downs of life what is constant is the Lord's chesed the Lord's covenant love and his control and so we can either choose to obsess about the facts on the ground 
and we have to deal with them, or we can make a determined effort to go deeper with God and do our Father's business. And I would say, I think I'm speaking for most of us here, that this is our commitment, is to go deeper with God and to be more fully engaged in the Father's business. That's what the outreach to 16th Street Mall was about. Um, It wasn't revolutionary. Uh, We didn't see hundreds and thousands of people come to know Yeshua. Uh, It was quite a challenge because on, on one side of us we had this fellow who was dressed like a robot, a, a, a clown, who was yelling and trying to get people's attention. On the other side of us, we had a couple who were doing magic that seemed to be on the darkest side. And here we were in endeavoring to worship the Lord and praise Him and invite people to, to come, not so much to Yeshua Tzion, but to come to Yeshua. And... You may have talked to people, you may have heard some of the stories, but the bottom line is we came away jazzed. Not because of us, but because we clearly saw the hand of God, the Lord made things happen. And people were drawn by the dancing, the blowing, the shofar, but most of all by the Spirit of God. Um, We don't know all that took place in people's hearts, It's not for us to determine, but it opened our eyes to see once again afresh the fact that the harvest field is so vast. You know, um, Yeshua tells us in Matthew Look around and see that the fields are white unto harvest. They're prepared for harvest. And you can either look at that and say, Lord, forget it. You know, as I pointed out from time to time, we live in uh, Godlessville. Um, Pardon the butchery of of the language here. Um, Where Joy and I live, you've got the uh, Planned Parenthood uh, clinic, you've got the hippie shack, and and you have a number of um, so-called adult entertainment venues. Um, But God is firmly in control. And we can either take the attitude that we curse the darkness, or we can hold up a candle. And that is what Yeshua instructed us to do. Let your light shine that people would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, we can either obsess with facts on the ground or we can determine to see God's perspective, God's reality, and press in that direction. And what we're seeing in Nehemiah is such a wonderful example of a man of God who is confronted with awful 
reality, awful news. And instead of spinning out of control, we see that Nehemiah makes a beeline for God and chooses to sit, to hear from God, and to engage in doing God's business. This prayer that we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 1 is one of the great intercessors' prayers that we find throughout Scripture. And by the way, Nehemiah is clearly a praying man. We see that not only in chapter 1, we see it throughout the book. Ever so often he'll stop and say, Lord, I really need your help. Um, so he is a praying man, and for somehow in, in our thoughts, in our minds, we have this dichotomy, we have this gulf between people who are deeply spiritual and who are, uh, who are firmly uh, praying people. We see that as the dichotomy between that and folks who are busy and who are effective and who are successful. Nehemiah was both. By the way, so was Daniel. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and by the way, you may know that a cupbearer in those days was certainly not a butler, someone who sashayed to the king and said, king, you should live so long, here is your, your vino. <laughs> you have to know something about the Persian, the Persian court at the time. There were a number of instances where people took a sip of wine and then went to their to their destiny. Um, and so, first of all, a cupbearer had to be someone who was trusted. And we know from history that the cupbearers were also part of the court. They were advisors. They had the ear of the, of the king. And yet, you see Nehemiah in this span of time, acting as if there's nothing on the screen but God. Amazing. And, and you see that he gets intelligence from several people who come from Jerusalem. And um, the story they present is very grim. Verse 3, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates are burnt with fire. Awful scene. Um, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The majority of the population had either died or was exiled. It was a horrible and traumatic period of time for the nation of Israel however that was about 140 years before where we are this chapter the scene in Nehemiah chapter 1 takes place 141 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and you say what's up with that um, kind of reminds you of some folks in the deep south who still speak about the war of northern aggression uh, or who mumble things such as the south shall rise again. 
And, and I, I would say for most of us, our inclination is to say, build a bridge and get over it. Um, so it's, as, as we look at what is being said here, we have to step back and say, okay, something doesn't quite make sense here. Because the language here is very raw, very fresh, as, the, as if this is something that had just happened. It speaks about captivity and the folks who survived the captivity. Now, here's a bit of reality. A, it happened 141 years before. B, the majority of the Jewish population at this point was living not in Israel, but was in the diaspora, in the exile. And I believe by all accounts, we're doing well, thank you. Sort of the United States of Babylon. And... Um, Nehemiah was doing well. He had absolutely no reason to get bent out of shape about something that happened um, 141 years or so ago. Why does Nehemiah respond in such a manner? Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you compare verse 1 of this chapter with verse 2, you see that the period of time that Nehemiah spent praying was probably the majority of four months. Now, we certainly don't know what he was doing when, in other words, when he was weeping, when he was fasting, when he was praying, when he was going about taking care of, of business and uh, praying to God while he had um, coffee breaks and lunch times and et cetera, et cetera. We don't know exactly what, what that looked like, but the point is very clear that the fate of Jerusalem is very much embedded in his brain for most, of that, for most of those four months. Now, some scholars point out to, to Ezra chapter 4, where in Ezra chapter 4, we see that the population began, the people in Jerusalem began an abortive effort to try and rebuild the walls by that point, and by the way, uh, in Ezra 4, we're looking at about 15 years or so before the time of Nehemiah here, Nehemiah chapter 1. But about 15 years or so before, the people of Jerusalem tried to rebuild the walls. They knew that that was something that needed to happen. But their enemies, they, by the way, were surrounded by all kinds of enemies. Uh, Samaritans and Moabites and so on and so forth they were able to get a hold of, of the king Artaxerxes and um, kind of tweaked the king kind of manipulated him how were, were they able to manipulate the king well there were from time to time revolts 
And, and what the Samaritans were doing is they pointed to the, they said to the king, hey, you see those Jews over there? Um, they're a rebellious bunch. And uh, you better make sure that they don't rise up because then they will rebel against you and you would lose your money, your taxes, the narrows. And Artaxerxes bought it. And he sent them a response saying, yes, you're right, those Jews are... And uh, tell, tell, uh, I'm telling the governor to put a stop to their rebuilding process. And so nothing happened at that point. It's possible that the governor had some of the walls turn, torn down. We're not really sure. But the point is, 15 years before, people tried to rise up and, and, and rebuild the walls, and, and they're battered down. And oh, by the way, it is the same king that Nehemiah is serving. So Nehemiah is aware of the fact that having the walls rebuilt is going up against some pretty serious obstacles here. Now, when you look at Nehemiah later on, you see that he's a man of action. He's a go-getter. He's a doer. It's hard to reconcile what we see in other parts of Nehemiah with what we see here. It just doesn't seem to fit. That he sits down, he weeps, he mourns, and so on and so forth. This is a sign of, of great, um, great sorrow. But what it tells you is that Nehemiah understood that his ability to be a go-getter and to get things done was driven by the power of God and was given to him only as he made the commitment to seek God and to receive the empowering that he needed. Why is Nehemiah so bent out of shape here? Old facts, but perhaps he's being stirred and new by the Spirit of God. And we see on a number of occasions when that happens. When people see some facts and then for some reason they re-see them against and, for, and, and they are stirred to action. One example of that, for instance, is Samson, who is a young fellow who really cares about wine, women, and song. And somehow the Spirit of God disturbs him. The Spirit of God bugs him. The Hebrew word there, pa'am, has the sense of grabbing him by the, by the, uh, by the shoulders and shaking him, disturbing him. And that's what gets Samson going. And perhaps you have some kind of a process where God really gets a hold of Nehemiah and tells him that things are not right and they need to change. And his prayer tells you a lot about who Nehemiah is. You know, folks, you can tell a lot 
about a person when you listen to how they pray. You know, if folks rattle through prayers, Lord, bless so-and-so, Lord, bless so-and-so, Lord, bless so-and-so, and by all means, let's get it done today. You know who you're talking about, who you're relating to. Because they obviously have no clue who God is. Nehemiah clearly does. He begins with a little Hebrew word, Anna. Please, Lord. And then he doesn't say what he wants God to do until the very end of the prayer. Does that remind you of another major prayer that we see elsewhere? The prayer that Yeshua gave to his disciples where they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Yeshua doesn't, doesn't say, all right, get into a, a prayer mode, get your praying hat on and, uh, and say, God, I have a list of needs and now would you please get on with it? But what Yeshua said is, first of all, a concern, speaks about a concern for God's reputation and who God is. And that's what you see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is saying, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. I realize that we typically don't start and pray like that. At least I haven't heard one of us praying like that. But the point simply is, where in our prayer do we pause to pay attention to God himself? We're so colored with our need that somehow when we find a moment to pray, we say, God, I'm really struggling today, or he is struggling, or she is struggling, and there's this big load, and would you please kick into action? All that Nehemiah does is he said, Lord, please, you are the great God. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive. By the way, this is a phrase that he repeats later on. So it's sort of like bookends in verse 6 and verse 11. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Remember that where you have bookends, they tell you this is real important. What's going to be in between the bookends is going to have something to do about the bookends. In other words, what Nehemiah is saying after that has to do with God. Would you please listen to what I have to say? How many times do we have that kind of a perspective? Think about it. It is wonderful and precious that we today understand the love of God that we understand passages such as Hebrews 4 where we're told to come boldly before the throne and sit in Abba's lap. And that's part of the picture. But folks, like any good lie, 
A good lie has an element of truth. It doesn't give the rest of the picture. And so because all we are told and all we believe is the fact that Abba Father is waiting for us, which he is, at the same time we have absolutely no clue. We don't connect with the fact that how amazing and how holy and how beyond our understanding he is. And a major part of that is the confession of sin. By the way, the Hebrew word for confess, yada, a different yada than, than to know, has the idea of both confessing but also of praising. So what does that tell you? It tells you that you first of all come and you praise God, you give thanks to who He is, you get who you're talking to, and then in process of praising him, you realize, oops, God, uh, yes, I get it. I, I've blown here, 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 and, and I have sinned, and um, take it. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Heal me of that junk. I want to be holy like you are. But it begins, first of all, with a grasp of who God is. And this is some, unfortunately part of reality that we often lose with the exception of seasons like Yom Kippur. But even then, even then, the notion of our, of our sin and how it relates to God, we really don't get it. We go from one ditch to the other. One ditch says... Oh, I'm my bad. I'm awful. I should have said this. I could have said that to the other ditch that said, "I'm okay. I'm, a, you know, I do the best I can, and the Lord loves me, and so on and so forth." Both of those are ditches. We praise God for who He is. Our focus is on Him. He fills the screen, not us. And within that kind of a context, we say. Okay, God, I get it. I get it. I have sinned. By the way, the nation of Israel is not in exile because Nehemiah worshipped idols. Again, remember, this is 140 years later. Yet Nehemiah said, I confess the sin that we, including myself and my father's house, have committed. If you listen to someone praying and there's no grasp of his or her sin, then you know God has got some serious work to do on that person. And by the way, what you find here is a progression of words that have to do with sin. First of all, chet is the missing of the mark. It's an archery word. You know, here is God's standards and you don't even hit the barn. <laughs> then the other word that is used there, chaval, has to do with being corrupt. You know, just bad to the bone. And the third word, ma'al, has to do with treachery. You know, we s slide up to God and say, God, you're cool 
And then as soon as we turn around, we do something that is absolutely rotten and hurts his heart. Nehemiah confesses all of that. And this is, folks, not to beat up on ourselves, but just to, to have a little house cleaning with God. As we realize just who he is, we get who we are. And by the way, remember that confession is always part of a process of repentance and healing. We cannot experience the healing from God unless we're willing to come and repent and confess That's when we experience the goodness of God. We praise God. We confess our sin. We experience His healing. We're freed up to do what He has for us to do. And then, Nehemiah in verse 8 says, Remember, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, etc., etc., they say, what's up with that? Does God not know everything? Yes, he does. Does God really need to be reminded as, as if he has some senior moments like some of us? I'm not speaking of anybody in particular. No, he doesn't need to be reminded. But Nehemiah does what all the great intercessors in scriptures say. That is simply, Lord, yes, we are, our sins are ugly, but we are your kids. We're your servants. Remember. Remember, Lord. For some reason that we don't understand, you've selected us. You've selected us could have chosen a whole bunch of other people and no I'm not going to get into uh, predestination here you've selected us you tapped us on the shoulder you brought us out of the muck no clue why but you did by the way I was preaching at a church this Sunday and uh, spoke about Romans 11 and of course I took the opportunity to quote Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, it's the power of God to salvation. And often people cut it off right there. They forget about the rest of it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. And we had a Q&A session at the end and there was one fellow who raised his hand and said, why the Jews? I could have said something caustic like, why not the Jews? <laughs> but I, said, I, I simply said to him, uh, God chose the nation of Israel for a purpose. Not because he thought we're cute and clever. Even though we win all kinds of Nobel Prizes. <laughs> God chose us for a functional purpose that is to be a light to the nations just like folks every one of us here who is a follower of Yeshua who knows who knows God and is in relationship with God has been placed here on earth just to do our own thing but to fulfill the functional purpose 
that God has given us, the gifts and calling that God has given us. Well, the gentleman more or less saw that. But that's what Nehemiah says, Lord, remember, we are your people, your servants. Then he comes back again, Lord, please, would you listen, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Again, we don't know where in the process of four months this was. And finally, at the end of this verse, he's, he, he gives the request. I, I would have lost my patience long before that. I, um, my request would have been way up there at the top somewhere. He says, give your servants success today. Hatzlichana. Please, Lord, would you grant me success by giving me favor in the presence of this man? Nehemiah knew who he was dealing with. You come into the presence of one of these guys, if you twitch funny and you don't please the king, they say, well, let's uh, separate his neck from the rest of his body. And finally, at this point, he says, Lord, would you please grant me success, not for my purposes, but for the purposes of, of your people, your business, God. I'm not interested in doing my affairs, my agenda. I'm interested in doing your agenda. So would you please empower me and grant me success to do your agenda? Amen. And when we do that, folks, we know we can pray with authority because we're praying according to God's will. We're not asking, we're not saying, God, I sat down and I'm pretty smart, you know, and I came up with a strategy here and uh, I think it's pretty cool. Then Lord, would you please spray some uh, pixie dust on it and, and make, it, make it happen and I'll give you thanks. No. Doesn't work that way. That's what Nehemiah does. He says, Lord, grant me success because Nehemiah here is functioning as God's representative. He wants to see God's plan come about. And I'm convinced that there are times when our prayers bounce off the ceiling because we treat God as if he is the candy machine. Okay, Lord, I'm putting in a quarter, I'm putting in 50 cents. Uh, I expect to pull on the lever and, and get the goodies. It doesn't work that way. If you get results, it is a different kind of a God. So for us here at Yeshua Tzion, the last couple of months have been a time of increased prayer. We began with a week of prayer before the, the holidays where we made a commitment to seek God, to set ourselves apart for God, to seek Him fervently for His hand of favor on us but again, not 
to do what we wanted, but so that his plans would be accomplished. Because we have a sense of urgency, folks. We have a sense of urgency. You look around and you realize that, that things really, really need God's hand. And we as a congregation feel that we are in a pivotal place. And we are. So Nehemiah's prayer, it is so resonates with us. I know our, our walls are not broken down. We're meeting in, in a place that's nicely heated. But we feel that we're in a pivotal place. Let me explain a couple of things about that. This past June, we anointed Rabbi David to be our associate. I'm not going to pick on you too much, David. And um, it's been delightful to see that he has taken to the work of helping to shepherd the flock like duck to water. That's on one hand. On the other hand, we've been encouraging, incurring the largest financial shortfall we have in years. And uh, previously in ministry, I would have freaked out. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I've been cool, calm, collected every single moment 24-7. I know who is God and who is not. But what I've seen over the years is that you take steps of faith and it seems like everything blows up in your face. It's clearly indicative of the fact that you take steps of faith and you get tested. God wants to see if you really mean business or if you're going to do one of these things, oops, uh, it's last night's pizza. So there's that fact, and at the same time, we've been hearing from the Lord that this is going to be a year of expansion for, for us. Now go figure all that out. Just a couple of examples. Um, when Eitan Shishkov came, and he shared with us, and we responded generously. And, and so did Eitan. He wrote out a check with several zeros on it for the building fund, along with a note that said that he trusted. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. He was seeing in the spirit and also visibly that God would grow us to a point where we would need to move to a building and then that God would give us a building. And I've heard from others, including from one brother who felt compelled to come to one of our services and share a word from the Lord saying that God was planning to bring about an overflow. And I've also been sensing that in the spirit myself. 
I would say most of you know that I don't often speak with major prophetic tones, but I've just been sensing the Lord saying the same kinds of things to me as well. From passages such as Isaiah 54, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. So what do you do with that? Shortfall simply means that we've had to dip into savings to pay bills. So how do you respond to that? Well, there's several different ways you can. One, of course, is to cut expenses. Um, and I think if you have seen our financial sheet, which, by the way, is available to everybody, just come and ask this bearded gentleman back here. Um, we are a frugal congregation because we feel strong sense of compulsion to be good stewards of the funds that God gives us. It's a, it's a holy responsibility. So we could do that, but instead of doing that, we have increased our spending. And you say, that's a little mishugi. <laughs> We've not increased our spending on, on golden toilet bowls. But on outreach, we spend a bunch of money uh, to have good materials for the outreach to 16th Street Mall. And here's another example. We sent a, a box with Messianic Jewish materials to a pastor in Kenya who is dying to learn all about Messianic Judaism. In fact, this guy has asked us to send somebody over to spend time training his people. So we feel from God that instead of retrenchment, instead of cutting back, the Lord wants us to expand, in particular, our efforts at outreach. Because the time is short and there's much work to be done. Very briefly, another possible approach that is not even on the screen for us is to press people with emotional pitches for giving. I'm sure you have heard it. It is absolutely nauseating. We don't want to come anywhere near it. What we give to God has to be out of a heart of love as an expression of worship. So the only real life option we have when we confront the shortfall is, is to seek God not only that he will bring the funds that are necessary to, to cover the shortfall, but that he will bring more so that we can expand and do more of his work. Amen. So as I've been, we've been praying, and as I've been praying, it became clear to me that the shortfall is not about money. Yeah. Really is not about money. Because God has all the money that is needed. It's about, it's about heart. 
And we are a generous people. I know that. Whenever we have special guests come, they're amazed at, at, at how we open our hearts and give to them. And yes, I'm aware of the fact that we've had a bunch of folks who have been unemployed or underemployed. But my assessment, and by the way, this is not based on on any um, financial information about anybody. I make it my business not to know who gives what. But it's, it's my assessment is that a number of our folks do not see the need to tithe here, i.e. give 10% of their income to God's work here, because they don't see what God is doing here. And no, we, we, we don't have all these elaborate plans and programs. But folks, God is here. Amen? And He is working here. And he has a place for each one of us, a niche for each one of us. And that requires bucks. And we believe that part of the plan that God has for us is that we will move into a building of our own, not so that we can exalt ourselves, but that we can more fully do what God has called us to do. And perhaps you look around, you, you come each Shabbat and you say, you know, we, this is a small congregation meeting in someone's basement, hidden. Or you can say, God has given me eyes of faith to see what he's doing here, and I want to give towards that. I want to tithe towards that. Joy and I have been tithing, by the way, long before I was in the ministry because we understand that this is God's plan. Yeshua Tzion tithes to God's work elsewhere. 10% of what comes in goes out to support other ministries. So again, this is really not about, about money, folks. This is about eyes of faith to see what God is doing and to understand what he has for each one of us and how he wants us to follow in those tracks. By the way, if Yeshua Tzion is your spiritual home, guess what? It's also God's home. As Mordechai explained to Esther, God's redemptive plans will be taken care of and he will do it and you may or may not participate in in that plan. Again, let me encourage you to consider that God knows where you are God knows your heart. God knows your giving patterns. God knows how you view things. Let me challenge you to simply say, God, give me eyes of faith to see what you're doing here. 
Give me eyes of faith to see where I belong, how I fit, what is the plan that you have for me, the niche of nurture and the niche of service that you have for me here. Money is just one part of it. Giving, first of all, begins with giving of ourself. And this time, I'm not going to ask anybody to stand or raise your hand, do any of that. I simply want to ask that as we stand before the Lord for the next few minutes and worship Him, that you have this dialogue with the Lord and say, Lord, where am I on all these issues? Where am I on, on all that I'm seeing here in this pa- passage in the Word? Am I seeing where the shortfall is? Am I majoring on that? Am I seeing the possibilities? Am I seeing what you want me to do? Am I seeing what you want to do? Just have this dialogue with the Lord as we stand, as we worship, and respond to Him. Lord God, we, uh, we're honored to be your servants. It's a great honor, Lord God, to serve you. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for all the times when we kvetch and moan and complain and um, presume, Lord God, to duck out and uh, find other venues of what we consider opportunities. Lord God, we pray for those eyes of faith. Not just to see the shortfalls in the wall, Lord God, but to see how you want the wall rebuilt and how you want your kingdom to expand and how you want people to be touched and how you want us to be part of that. Lord God, speak to us and give us hearts of courage, Lord God, hearts of courage and strength passionate heart, Lord God, for your business. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.